Broward Public Schools confront a student exodus. Could Tallahassee bring affordable housing to the Keys? And should an indigenous Guatemalan migrant be behind bars? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll talk with Broward County Public Schools Superintendent Peter Licata about how he's adjusting to dramatically declining enrollment and the growing competition that's driving it. We'll also look at the state legislature's efforts to get sorely needed tourism workforce housing built in the Florida Keys. And we'll examine the case of a Guatemalan migrant farm worker who community leaders insist was unjustly charged with a Florida police officer's death. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Last night, a town hall was held at Fort Lauderdale High School. It was the first of three scheduled for this month to discuss how the Broward County public school system, the second largest in Florida and the nation's sixth largest, should deal with significantly declining student enrollment. The numbers, in fact, are pretty stark. By next school year, Broward is expected to be looking at almost 60,000 empty seats and tens of millions of dollars in lost revenue as a result. The most obvious move is to shut down under-enrolled schools and consolidate others. But it's good to keep in mind that the Broward School System's campaign to adjust to this student exodus is called redefining our schools. And that also entails the urgent need for public schools like Broward's to recognize what Broward Superintendent Peter Licata calls the new education competition that's luring students and their families away especially charter schools, homeschooling, and expanded private school vouchers. What do you think Broward Public Schools should do to stem this tide? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is Broward County Public Schools Superintendent Peter Licata. Dr. Licata, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. I just want to get to your personal sense of the magnitude of Broward's public school enrollment crisis. I, I mentioned the district could be staring at close to 60,000 empty desks next year. In the past decade, we've seen enrollment drop by more than 20,000 students down to about 197,000. Historically speaking, Dr. Licata, just how serious is this decline? So there's, it's been happening for years, and I think we have about 200,001 students, which is about 24,000 decline over the last 10 years. Here's the problem with this. We were big. We, we still are very big, but we were so big 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that it required us to build more schools. And now that we've changed the market economy, we've seen these children now go through our schools for you know the amount of years, 12 years, 14 years. Now we're seeing them gone and we're seeing a lot of families that are moving from the area. You know, housing values are very, very high. And we're seeing the people that move to Broward County in particular are not bringing school aged children with them. So we mm -hmm. see this as one of the main reasons why this has dropped over the last three, four years. Obviously, COVID had something to do with it as well, because homeschooling has gone up. Right. They're getting vouchers for those homeschool students now under legislation. So. It's a big problem because we're paying for things we don't have. We're paying for empty seats. Right. And if we got to do it the right way, if we're going to be stewards of taxpayer money, 
while offering the most we can for the students that we do have, we got to make some tough decisions. How, but that doesn't go ahead. Sorry, no, no, I'm no, sorry. no, go, no, please go ahead. Finish. But that doesn't mean just openly cutting or closing schools at the, you know, these are the most lower enrolled and cut them. There, there, there's other reasons why you got to look at birth rates in the area. You have to look yeah. at leadership. You got to look at, is it programming at the school mm-hmm. or is there a better combination school that would attract students if it's full choice that would bring them back from charters? We're not going right. to find 50,000 students out there. Well, we con- know that. Well, considering those goals you just mentioned, how badly will the projected additional loss of $30 million in revenue affect the district moving forward? I believe that is the amount of lost revenue you're looking at for the next school year, possibly? That's a that's a pretty good approximation. And yes, and every everybody expects uh, government agencies such as school districts to make sure their budget is balanced. And that's mm-hmm. what we are required to do every year. So we do have to do some things to make sure that we're not spending more money than we have, because that's right. against the law. Now, so, Broward is hardly the only school district in Florida or the country seeing enrollment decline. But but at the same time, for example, your old district to the north, Palm Beach County, is seeing enrollment growth. What's the difference here, do you think? Uh, we, we've talked about that. And I had my demographers in here and we uh, for the past week or two. And we've been talking about that. And there's a different there's a different person that moves to Broward County versus Palm Beach County. Palm Beach County still have the ability to uh, build developments and build land outwards because they're not completely filled up. Broward County, however, is building vertically. And if you're downtown Broward, you know that the sunshine doesn't hit the sidewalk much anymore. It wasn't like that 50 years ago. So the families or the people that are moving here are moving to a County that's more, uh, obviously more diverse with uh, according to the chamber of commerce we're the most diverse county uh-huh. in in florida which which leads us to the belief that families are not moving here that have school aged children they're moving to other counties that are cheaper not that palm beach county is cheaper they're actually moving to the north uh-huh. in bigger droves so okay. when we see that massive influx of 4000 per month or whatever number that is coming in the folks that are moving here are, usually don't have school aged children so we do right. have to adjust to that so demographic flow has a lot to do with it as well you mentioned recently that broward public schools actually should have started addressing this situation years ago. And from the looks of it, you're probably right. So why did the district keep putting it off to the to the point that the decisions that have to be made now are arguably more difficult than they would have been, say, five years ago? Well, um, some would say because they were waiting for me. Um, but <laughs> okay. I say that in jest uh, simply because the reality is no superintendent or school board wants to do this. And we now have a school board that understands it. They're supportive of it if okay. we do it the right way. I am uh, willfully doing this in a way that I know that I can do this. I know it's a challenge, uh, but I think it's the right thing to do for the kids we do have and the families we do have so we can provide more. Right. Let me make, let me make this very, very clear, too, that as we move through this process, there has been many, many years, not 10, not 20, not 30, 50, 60, 70 years of some communities that have not been uh, communicated with that have been uh, sort of uh, ignored or have been the first place that they go to when we start closing schools. And usually those are diverse communities. Yeah, and and, and we're going to get to that because that and, and you what you're mentioning is sort of perhaps a, a silver lining in this predicament that it does give you the opportunity to start addressing communities that perhaps weren't addressed um, uh, in, in years past. But let's let's stick with the process here that you just mentioned. So run down for us here, Dr. Licata, what you think are the most important solutions, not only in terms of closing and consolidating under-enrolled schools, but just as important in terms of improving the school product 
Broward is offering families these days. Your Redefining Our Schools campaign lays out a five-step options process, so-called, right? Yes. So, you know, timeline-wise, we're looking at doing these meetings and, and doing feedback. Uh, there are, it went real well last night. There are some, some things we're going to adjust to make sure that we're doing it more efficiently, but the message will be the same. The questions are going to be the same. We do not want to vary from one place to another because then you're getting missed messages. Mm-hmm. Timeline is in March, we talk about it. We look at it, bring it to the board. They give me more of a refined look. We go back out to the smaller communities of the, that may be impacted. We start talking to them about their ideas. Then we go back to the board two months later for another workshop. They look at it, we refine a little bit more, we communicate even more. And then in June, uh, I bring a proposal of what what all that information, all what they think right. of at least five repurposed schools so we can begin the process, which you know is about 18 months from now, 17 months and, from now. And can you summarize that. what these five options really are uh, that, so that the, you're laying out for people? The first thing is we're gonna look to see if we can combine schools. Uh, second thing is, can we programmatically change some schools to where they're offering more of what other what what parents want? And that's one of the parts of the community meetings I thought went really well. Okay, we have to change the way we teach things, change the way we offer programs. Make sure, you know, we have technical colleges and four choice schools that are very crowded, very full, mm-hmm. and they're some of the best in the state. Right? Why wouldn't we expand on that? That may get some of our students back, but it also may increase the idea that we can utilize campuses even more so. So mm-hmm. that's a big one. Closure is the last option. Um, okay, you so know, high school closure is a last option then. It, it, it truly is okay. um, because it involves so much between boundary changes, moving staff, okay. uh, affordability, transportation of moving kids from one school to another. Yeah. And I will tell you this. Um, you know, we really, you know, high schools in this list, there's there's no list whatsoever. But you see some high schools that are under enrolled. High schools would be the hardest. And I will be, uh, you know, 99.9% sure. sure that high schools are somewhere where we're not going to go. We'll only improve them right. versus even consider repurposing. But, but, what we're, but we're seeing that most of Broward's under-enrolled schools are elementary schools, correct? And the situation is particularly bad in kindergarten through third grade. Why is that? So kindergarten through third grade is our lowest uh, or our biggest or our highest uh, loss of students. And it's it's nationwide. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is, uh, I think, believe homeschool had a, a lot to do with it. The vouchers have a lot to do with it. We're going to try and recapture that by that repurposing and the repurposing and redefining. Redefining meaning getting more students in when they're three and four years old. I know the state doesn't fund us for that, mm-hmm. but we need to start seeing that, and especially zip codes where children come to school and they don't know how to read yet. Now, one fix one fix we're hearing is to create more K through eight schools. That is definitely going to be on the block. Um, the last uh, my last role, I built three brand new schools that were K eight, and were you know there's a wait list for them already in another area. So right. it does work if it's done right and funded right and it's combined right, but it's it takes a lot of planning. And that's why we're so far out in front of this instead of a week or two or a month or two and telling communities, hey, we're doing this. Right. No, we need to hear from the people first before we start doing okay. this. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking with Broward County Public School Superintendent Peter Licata about his new campaign to confront a big decline in enrollment. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN.
So, Dr. Licata, what did you hear at that first town hall meeting on this predicament last night that stood out to you in terms of what direction Broward families and residents want the district to go in now to adjust to these new realities? Well, I walked through all nine groups, and we're going to obviously have more groups like this, but we're going to have a little better environments for them to do it because some of the groups were great. Some of it was hard to hear. But what I heard first, and I heard it resounding, was trust. And you don't do that with one town hall meeting or one meeting where people get to tell you what they think. Well, especially since you inherited a public school system that does not have a lot of trust these days, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 that's, and that's hard to work off of. And, and we're going to do that. We're going to build that back. And this is one step of many steps. What also I heard was that our schools don't always offer the programming that people want. And okay. that is something we can adjust. And that's also part of the redefining Will they come back? Mm -hmm. You know, I, and that's that's some of the things I walked into a classroom the other day at a school at Pompano High. And I said, you know, to students, if you did not get into Pompano High, would you have gone to a private school or charter school? Half the students raised their hand. Mm -hmm. What is that? It doesn't take a genius to figure out what that means. So let's see if we can figure out how we can do another Pompano High. Well, choice is big right there. So let's start talking about choice. Right. Well, yeah, let's get into that a little bit more. I want to look at the larger picture here and talk about how and why a public school system like Broward's loses this much of its student body in the first place. I mean, we've talked about the Democrat, the demographic sort of technical aspects. But as I mentioned at the outset, you've made it clear that public schools have to wake up to the fact that they're in a serious education competition battle now. Homeschooling, charter schools, private school vouchers. Um, what do school public schools like Broward's what does Broward public schools have to do and what were the parents telling you last night that they have to do in order to be more educationally competitive today so I, I heard this problem about 10 years ago in my previous role and I saw charter schools getting students because they were doing things that we weren't and at, by the third year into hearing that I was able to actually reduce the charter school enrollment of about 2,000 students north mm -hmm. of here I'm thinking the same thing Let's do what what we do best, but let's also do what others do best. And we got to program it. We got to make sure that we're we're offering what people need, but also what people want. Right? How the does it, how does a public school then emulate a charter school in in the context that you're you're just now mentioning? Um, I believe that choice is that is about choice. It's about parental choice and school choice and, and creating environments where students want to go to an engineering program that's not local. They're able to go to another school that's not too far away. A medical school program. Kids are going through our medical academies are getting jobs immediately. Our automotives are getting jobs immediately. Air conditioning. There's so many things that we can be doing right. that we need to expand on. We're doing a lot of successful things, but we need to do more of that. Right. I also want to make another point, if I have the time. Sure. What I also heard in the third place is our facilities. I am I am I am openly depressed about them when I go on some of our campuses because they're not fit for our children. Our children deserve much better, and we have some facility needs that are massive. And that's been a that's been a many year process. And you know I've been working on that, and that's been all mm -hmm. over the news. But our kids deserve a really really nice school, and they deserve the best of equipment and a beautiful environment. And so does our staff, and they deserve safe schools as well. So. We're going to have to work on that piece, and I'm slowly working on that, too. But we need to be attractive. When you pull up to the school, you want a place that you feel proud about. And it shouldn't, right. it shouldn't matter your zip code when you walk up to that school what it looks like, because they all should look great. Dr. Licata, our education reporter Kate Payne observed one of last night's town hall breakout focus groups, and a big issue that stood out for her involved race. Many of Broward's most under-enrolled schools are in Black and Latino communities, for example, such as Pembroke Pines and Pompano Beach. And 
There's a fear that minority communities that have suffered in the past because of systemic racism and inequality could end up being the most adversely affected by the school closures and consolidations that are coming. How do you alleviate those concerns? Well, the great news about that is it's understood and it's something that I know it's in the forefront of our thoughts. We know the history. I know the history personally growing up here. And that's something we have to be very sensitive to. And that's why we're going to reach out to uh, our places of worship. We're going to reach out into smaller communities. But you also have to look at the bigger picture. 80% of Broward County Public School students are either black or brown. Only 17% are white and the 3% are mixed or Asian. So all the when you talk about all the low enrollment schools, they are because we're 80% black or brown. So first of all, that logic works. Secondly, some of our students um, in, in, let's say in the Pompano, Pompano's growing, Pompano's growing. So we got to look at that. Is that something we need to make sure we have the seats to fill if they are having families in Pompano? You know, Pembroke Pines had a massive uh, glut of uh, families move in there many years ago. And those children have actually matriculated out of our schools. And now we have right. schools down there. So mm -hmm. when you look at that, I understand. And they're not wrong. I sat down with a gentleman who's 70 years old who teaches for us. And his father was the principal of Dillard High many years ago after everything was over. And I sat down, I talked with him and had a real conversation right. without the cameras. And it was it was reaffirming that we have to be not just sensitive, but incredibly sensitive and listening because we do not want the idea that only certain neighborhoods are getting touched. It's going to be based on data. It's going to be based on the ideas that we get from these neighborhoods. And that's why we are reaching out. There is no list of preformed ideas of what schools are what. We're not closing 70 schools like a lot of social media made mistakes about and, and people are, are panicked. I get it. I get it. And I get it. Okay. But the reality is we're only doing four, five, six schools maybe this year of, of repurposing. That's been the question of the board. That's what they've directed me. Okay. And that's what we're going to do. But we're going to do it right. Well, and we're going to do it way out in front. Well, a reminder to our listeners, they'll have two more opportunities this month. Uh, the next Broward County Public Schools Town Hall on Facing Declining Enrollment called Redefining Our Schools will be next Thursday, February 15th at 6 p.m. at J.P. Taravella High School in Coral Springs. The final town hall will be held on February 22nd at 6 p.m. at Charles W. Flanagan High School in Pembroke Pines. For more information, visit BrowardSchools.com slash redefining. Peter Licata is the superintendent of Broward Public, excuse me, Broward County Public Schools. Dr. Licata, many thanks for talking with us. We really appreciate it. I appreciate the time and making sure that we do get to all our communities and communicate that we are listening. Best of luck. Thank you, sir. Still to come, more affordable workforce housing may finally be coming to the Keys via Tallahassee. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Here's an unsurprising fact. Most of the jobs in the Florida Keys are in the tourism industry. And as we know all too well in South Florida, tourism is for the most part a low-wage sector. So you'd think affordable workforce housing would be a priority that the Keys took care of a while ago. Think again. An estimated third of the workforce there can't meet its basic housing cost needs, especially since home buying in general in the Keys is increasingly out of reach for most working families today. 
But legislation in Tallahassee could help right that situation. State Senator Anna Maria Rodriguez and State Representative Jim Mooney, who both represent Monroe County, have bills moving through the state legislature right now that could significantly incentivize affordable housing development in the Keys. In fact, they'd offer developers full tax exemptions for those projects and free up tens of millions of dollars from the local tourism council. But does this also jive with the environmental needs of the Keys? Joining me now in the studio to help us answer that question is WLRN's new Keys reporter, Julia Cooper. Julia, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you on. Let's just start here by talking a little bit about why it's been so hard for Monroe County and the Keys to build affordable workforce housing. I know one factor has been zoning, um, making sure the Keys' most valuable commodity, its environment, is protected. What have been some other obstacles? Absolutely. Uh, the other one is obtaining a building permit. Mm -hmm. um, the the Florida Keys are considered what's called an area of critical state concern. Concern, right. Yeah. Um, that is because the area is of ecological importance and the state has a vested interest in protecting it. Mm -hmm. um, so for many, many decades, we've had uh, restricted development regulations that are overseen by the state. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a famously strict and slow process right. that often um, leaves landowners um with difficulties obtaining permits to build. No, yeah, that's and 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 in, in that context, the reef, or you know, the the, the uh, South Florida's coral reef is, is a huge issue there as well. But given all that, how then would this new legislation in Tallahassee get around some of those obstacles? What exactly would it do to break that affordable housing logjam in the Keys? Yeah, so I don't think it's uh, getting around those obstacles necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, more so, I think it's incentivizing developers to want to work within uh, the restrictions that are already set up. Right. That's a very good point. It, it, was that part of the problem all along was finding a way to get developers to want to work on affordable housing within those parameters that can be kind of tight in the keys. Definitely. Um, yeah. Because these restrictions are so strict, um, it is hard to find the want for developers to uh, build in the first place. Okay. So And so what then are the incentives that are these legislators are now offering developers to make that more enticing? Tax breaks. Yeah. Um, so the plan is to... Um, give the incentive of a one up to 100% exemption yeah. on ad valorem taxes. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the bigger parts of this legislation. That's that's a pretty big uh, tax break. I mean, when you, when you look at the history of these kinds of proposals, I mean, 100%. Uh, it, was that surprising to you when you first heard that, uh, you know, uh, broached? I think so. I think I think it was um, a very interesting approach. Um, uh, I didn't expect that to be um, part of this bill for yeah. sure. What do you think compelled State Senator Rodriguez and State Representative Mooney to present these bills now? I mean, what's changed that perhaps made their proposal more feasible now than it may have been a decade ago? Let's say. Yeah, I think th I think the need has been here for a very long time, mm -hmm. um, but maybe it's that locals are being more vocal about it. Okay. Um, yeah. When I asked Representative. Mooney about this legislation, he did say that um, the county government did have a hand in crafting the legislation. It's really not coming from Tallahassee. It's a locally driven uh, bill. So the, the, the county is finally, lit, you know, to, to, for lack of a better way of saying it, sort of getting its act together now, finally, on, on this issue. Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, that's good to know. 
Let's talk a little bit, too, about why it's so hard for working families in the Keys to find and afford adequate housing. You mentioned to me earlier that the nonprofit United Way recently issued a report that rather starkly lays out just how difficult the economics are for households there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The United Way of Collier County and the Florida Keys um, released a report that was a point-in-time survey for the year 2021. Mm -hmm. And what they found uh, of the households they surveyed was that 33% couldn't meet um, their basic needs for funding essentials. As I said in the intro, a full third. Yeah. Yeah. What else might have been in there that stuck out for you? Um, That is a percent over the state average. So people in the Keys are struggling more than other parts of the state. Right. Um, Yeah, that was that was what stood out. No, no, no. That that, that's good to know that, you know, comparatively with the state. Now, you're a Palmetto Bay native, Julia. I, I live in Palmetto Bay, too. But you've got family living in the Keys, right? What what do you hear people like them saying about the housing situation down there? That it's tough. Um, I mean, for many years, my family members uh, lived in Homestead and commuted into Key Largo every day for work. Um, it is it is really tough to find right. housing. Um, admittedly, uh, when I was looking for housing myself, I recently moved into Key Largo as well. Um, I just discovered that you kind of have to know people that are connected in the community already to find um, acceptable housing options. Right. So this could change all that. Do we have any idea of how much new affordable housing could be built in the Keys if this incentivization legislation passes? And and by the way, if, if, if it passes, does it look like Governor DeSantis will sign it? Um, so, uh, the way that the bill is set up, uh, when I was speaking with Representative Mooney, he said he didn't have a hard and fast number of how many units this would open up the door for. Mm -hmm. Um, it more so just, um, again, incentivizes developers and opens the door for more funding. Um, as for if the governor is going to pass it, um, right now, both companion bills have, have passed at least one committee stop. Okay. So so Mooney's legislation has passed committee as well. Yes. Okay. Um, and, and. And um, they've received praise from from their colleagues in those committee meetings um, that this is a good bill. And so I haven't seen any signs as of now as to why he wouldn't sign it. Okay, And it would go into effect this summer, right? Yes, in July. Okay, good. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about legislation up in Tallahassee that could break the affordable housing logjam down in the Keys. So... Julia, there's another important component to these bills, right? And it involves the Florida Keys Tourist Development Council, correct? Yes. Just what is the council and how does it figure in this affordable housing plan? Yeah, so they are an arm of the county government that's operated primarily through a nonprofit called Visit Florida Keys. Um, Mm -hmm. And what they do is they handle um, tourism uh, related taxes. So so they, they generate and handle uh, funding that comes through the area when it comes to uh, the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. And why, you know, I mean, we're, again, when, when I'm talking about things that might have been a little surprising, were you surprised that this particular agency, the Tourist Council, you know, uh, that it was given sort of a large role in, in this. I mean, it kind of explained to us what is the role that they're being given in, in this, this legislation. Absolutely. So this legislation would open up the door for um, the Tourism Development Council to uh, use its surplus funds from okay. that tax revenue mm-hmm. uh, to fund housing projects. Okay, surplus. And we're talking about 
How much do you think, more or less? When I spoke with Representative Mooney, he said it's in the ballpark of $29 million. Okay, so almost $30, $30 million that they've got in hand that they can contribute to this. Yes. Um, but <laughs> there is a big concern here, right? Namely, that the Tourism Council itself doesn't have the best of reputation uh, these days. What are the more troublesome issues swirling around this particular agency? And the word corruption is is not an overstatement, right? Right. Um, so back in October, there was an initial audit released from the Monroe County Comptroller's Office. Um, and what that found was it, it basically alleged financial mismanagement within TDC um, uh, managers. T- T- TDC being the Tourist Development Council. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it, it, go- it went so far as to say that um, the council may have misrepresented its revenues and expenditures to the public. Right. Um, and... So there was a laundry list yes. of malfeasance. Act. Can, can you can you recall some of the other you know charges that were brought up against them? Uh, there were um, moral dilemmas within within leadership mm-hmm. uh, called into question, um, uh, and as well as um, you know, um, let's see. Uh, you know, uh, repeated non-compliance with Monroe County's right. purchasing policy. Purch- I, that was a non-compliance with a lot of regulations. I mean, it looked like this council was sort of just, you know, had carte blanche to be a little freewheeling with 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 a lot of these resources that are so important to, to this part of the state. Yeah, that was the other thing. It was a lack of oversight from management uh-huh. on um, expenditures and, and revenue coming through the council. Yeah, and now it, if you're passing legislation that tells this agency we're going to give you a you know the 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 ability to take thirty million dollars of surplus funds and and one would think gee we we'd like to see um, this this agency become a little more accountable before we give it that kind of role no. Yeah, um, uh, you know, Monroe County is is attempting to uh, address the issue currently. They've been quietly um, passing policy changes for mm-hmm. the council, um, and uh, they put their uh, director on administrative leave. Um, so they're interested in um, taking into account a lot of the recommendations in that audit, um, but it's something that they're still working on. Right, and a final report, uh, we understand, is supposed to come out, What uh, in, uh, I think it was like uh, 16 weeks from Christmas or something of, like that. And so we're talking about maybe in, in the spring, we'll finally get a final answer as to whether this agency has got its act together enough to actually play this role in, in affordable housing development? Yes. So an outside firm was hired to to review this audit and, and um, also do its own independent in- investigation into the council. Um, and that is still undergoing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, let's go back to where these bills stand right now in the state legislature. Um, you, you'd mentioned that uh, they're, they're coming out of committee. Where do they go now um, uh, in, in, in terms of you know, the, the legislative process up in Tallahassee? Both have a couple more committee stops before they, they make it to the full floor. So, yes. Okay. And as you said, it looks as though Governor DeSantis will be willing to sign these. Um, he hasn't indicated it like a, an interest in, in wanting to support it publicly yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I haven't seen anything that, that would indicate that he doesn't want to sign it. And I'm curious to ask you, Julia, I mean, one of the big issues between Tallahassee and the governor and, and the keys, you know, in recent years has been the keys being very upset at at the state government for imposing its will. Uh, you know, when the keys tried to regulate the the, the, the uh, cruise industry in Key West, for example, and the state stepped in and said, no, you can't. 
Um, this seems like sort of a rare instance of bonhomie and cooperation between Governor DeSantis and Tallahassee and the legislature and the Keys. Do, do, do a lot of the people you talk to about this, do they feel surprised themselves <laughs> that, that these two ends of the state are suddenly working together? Yeah, I think I think this being a locally generated bill um, is, you know, people hope that this is them turning a new leaf and, and working more in cooperation with each other um, mm-hmm. on the local and statewide levels. Well, yeah, no, that I, I think that is a, a positive development, um, particularly you know, when we're so concerned about what's called state preemption these days, this this Absolutely. seems like preemption in a positive sense, maybe we could say. Yeah. Um, one thing about this bill is that it's locally tailored. So um, okay. this one specifically would only affect the Florida Keys. Um, and so mm-hmm. even though it's moving through the statewide legislature, it's not really... A statewide bill, I would say. Right. Okay. No, that's that's a very good point. So then, Julia, what what are some of the other important issues in the Keys that you think we should be watching right now? I, I know the state legislature also wants to see more development in general uh, down there, a loosening of those you know strict regulations that you were talking about, so that more how ho- more how ho- not only more housing but more buildings, business buildings, more development, etc. Where does that debate stand now? Yeah, ultimately, it's been pretty quiet right now. Um, like you said, that that decision is up to the state um, to have the final say on. Um, but right now, on the local level, uh, the county is working to just get more data to provide the state with mm-hmm. um, to make a final decision on that. And and where where how do the environmentalists feel right now? Do they are you know when we discussed this issue last year on the show? I remember uh, environmentalists were just up in arms. They thought this was going to be just uh, an open gate to that kind of environmental abuse that we were talking about at the outset of our discussion here uh, on the environment, on the reefs, etc. Do environmentalists feel that maybe uh, this is looking not so dangerous? for the environment in the Keys? Well, they definitely still feel that too much development is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the people that I've spoken with, they've pretty much dropped the the notion that there's going to be no more uh, development allowed uh, beyond mm. what is already allowable. Okay. Um, and so I think everyone knows that there's going to be some sort of middle ground between no more allocations allowed and the um, full 8,000 uh, vacant lots that we could see uh, developed over. Okay. So either way, big, big changes coming in the keys. Yes. And you'll be watching them for us. Julia Cooper, as I said, is our new keys reporter at WLRN. Julia, many thanks. Thank you so much. Still to come. The tragic death of a Florida police officer and the tragic case of the Guatemalan migrant worker charged with that death. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. It's no secret that Florida agriculture depends on migrant labor. Often that labor is undocumented, and often that undocumented labor includes indigenous migrants who speak little Spanish, let alone English. That's the case with Virgilio Aguilar Mendez, a Guatemalan of Maya descent. Aguilar was 18 last May when police officer Michael Kunovich approached him as he stood outside a motel near St. Augustine, Florida. Aguilar was staying with other migrant farm workers at that hotel, but Kunovich suspected him of trespassing. Body cam footage indicates Aguilar did not really understand Kunovich's interrogation. Where are you staying, sleeping? Here? Yes. 
Well, why aren't you eating inside? What? Okay. Other officers arrived. Aguilar was wrestled down and tasered, and they found on him a pocket knife that he used to cut watermelons in the fields. But shortly after the altercation, Kunovich died of overexertion of his heart. Aguilar, as a result, is behind bars in St. John's County, charged with manslaughter in Kunovich's death. Kunovich's death is, of course, tragic, but migrant advocates say so is Aguilar's situation. They include the nonprofit Guatemalan Maya Center in Lake Worth Beach, and they've mounted a concerted effort to have Aguilar released and the charges against him dropped. Joining me now is WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter, Wilkin Brutus, who produced a compelling report on this case for us this week. How are you, Wilkin? Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. I want to first talk about who the two main figures in this tragedy are, Virgilio yes. Aguilar Mendez and Michael Kunovich. Let's start with Sergeant Kunovich. What do we know about him? Yeah, certainly a tragic story. Uh, Sergeant Michael Paul Kunovich has served as a law enforcement officer in St. John's County for nearly 30 years. Uh, he left behind two sons, and he was one of five siblings. Uh, Kunovich was actually from Ohio before moving right. down to Florida, right. according to his obituary, and had a successful law enforcement career here in St. John's County in northern Florida. And was only 52 years old. Only 52. So, yes, uh, so uh, doubly tragic that, that they would have had uh, a heart condition of, of this kind. And Virgilio Aguilar, as I mentioned, he's a teenager from Guatemala of indigenous Maya descent. What should we know about him in this case, especially his language situation? Yeah, so Aguilar Mendez is 19 years old now, um, was a farm worker in St. John's County who, prior to being incarcerated, was sending remittances to his impoverished family in the small town of Guatemala. He speaks mom, Tim, which is one of many types right. of indigenous Mayan languages in that rural area. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't working out of Palm Beach County, but there is a huge demographic of indigenous Mayans here in Palm Beach County in right. the city of Lake Worth Beach. Many don't speak English, and this may be hard to believe with a name like Aguilar Mendez, mm -hmm. but many in that Mayan community speak very little Spanish. Right. No, and and, and we're going to get to, a, to, to that uh, in, in a bit. I want to stick with this narrative here of, of the incident itself. So these two men... Michael Kunovich, Sergeant Kunovich, and Virgilio Aguilar Mendez. They encounter each other outside a Motel 8, correct? Uh, in, correct. In San Agustin, one night last May, May 19th. Tell us more about what exactly happened. Yeah, so last year on May 19th, body cam footage from Kunovich shows him reporting Aguilar Mendez as a, quote, suspicious Hispanic male after spotting the teen eating and drinking in a parking lot near a Super 8 motel room where the teen was staying with other farm workers. Right. Then Officer Kunovich began questioning Aguilar Mendez in English about his whereabouts and why he was eating inside of the motel or eating outside instead of inside of the motel. Right. And so during that confrontation, Aguilar Mendez is heard saying, quote, I'm sorry, multiple times and expressing that he doesn't understand English. Yeah. And Tim, that's where everything goes downhill. Because at that point, Kunovich asks him if he has a weapon. And that brings us to perhaps the most crucial moments of this incident. I want to play part of your report that aired on WLRN this week, which contains some of the police body cam audio, and I should warn our listeners, some of it is disturbing to hear. 
Moments later, Kunovic asks if he has any weapons on him, and Aguilar Mendez says no, but it's unclear if he understands the question. Kunovic then wrestles the teen to the ground and tases him several times after two other police officers arrive to restrain the teen. Turn around! Put your hands! Hey! No, no, no. Use your hands! No. Hands! And as they're frisking him, one of them finds a pocket knife. Aguilar Mendez says, para sandia. Explaining that he uses the knife to cut watermelons when he's working in the fields. Right. So sandia being the Spanish word for watermelon. And he was simply right. trying to explain to them that I have this pocket knife on me because that's what I use in my work uh, to, to harvest Watermelons. So, Wilkin, okay, as you point out there, Aguilar in all likelihood does not understand Kunovich when he asks if he has a weapon. And one of the big points of contention here is, was Aguilar reaching for the pocket knife he used to cut watermelons in his field work, as St. John's County Sheriff Robert Hardwick later claimed? Yeah, so what sparked public outcry is that the video doesn't show Aguilar Mendez pulling a knife out on Kunovich. In or, fact, or even reaching for it. Or even reaching for it. In right. fact, he pulled his he pulled his arm away. Um, in fact, moments after the exchange, Kunovich wrestled the teen to the ground and tased him several times. It it's when two other police officers who joined to try to uh, detain Aguilar Mendez and they placed him in a chokehold. It wasn't until that scuffle that they had sort of um, found the pocket knife in his shorts and w- which were used for his farm worker jog- job. In a tragic turn, the arresting officer, Sergeant Michael Kunovich, right. suddenly collapsed and died at a nearby hospital of cardiac arrest. That's that, that same night? That same evening. Right. And it was it, the, the, the doctor said it was overexertion of the heart, no? It was a medical distress. It was overexertion. Right. It wasn't during the actual um, scuffle or the actual attempt to re- uh, to restrain Aguilar Mendez on the ground. Right. Two other officers are the ones who actually found the pocket knife, right. not the arresting officer. And Aguilar then is blamed for Kunovich's death, correct? Correct. Uh, he was actually charged with murder, and it was later reduced to aggravated manslaughter while resisting an officer with violence. Right, and that's and the charge he's facing now. That's the charge he's facing now, and it's it's what critics have called an overcharge that sets alarm bells for people who are following the story. Right. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the case of an indigenous Guatemalan migrant farm worker who was charged many say unjustly, in the death of a Florida police officer. So, Wilkin, let's let's pivot to that uh, aspect of things here, um, to the effort specifically now to exonerate Aguilar in this case, uh, because many, as you point out, believe he was, quote, overcharged. What are advocates like the Guatemalan Maya Center and his attorney, Philip Arroyo, basing their claim on when they insist that he has been unjustly charged. I believe unreasonable search, for example, is one of the one of the things they point to most. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. His civil attorney, Philip Arroyo, uh, told me he plans to file a federal lawsuit against the sheriff's office for violation of Aguilar Mendez's constitutional rights, making the case to him for unreasonable searches and seizures. Those sort of specific constitutional rights are protected under the Fourth Amendment, and he was quite adamant about that. He also said this could set a dangerous precedent that if an American, uh, American-born citizen is resisting arrest and an officer has a heart attack, people could potentially be on the hook. And so there's all sorts of 
different aspects of the case that he's raising, yeah. uh, in, including racial profiling being being one of them. Yeah, let's let's talk about the racial profiling. Uh, Kunovich's use, which we hear on the body cam audio, of quote suspicious Hispanic male, as he's as he's approaching. Uh, Virgilio Aguilar, that that plays an important role in uh, his his defense as well. Yeah, at, at least from the civil attorney's perspective, uh, there was there was never a time in the video where trespassing was heard. In fact, you heard the sheriff, um, the county sheriff, say that um, Officer Kunovich was stopping Aguilar Mendez for trespassing, uh, but that term wasn't used in the video itself. And so they're basing that claim of racial profiling based on the fact that Kunovich re- reported and called Aguilar Mendez into the station as a suspicious Hispanic male. Mm-hmm. Now, do Aguilar's defenders, including, as we mentioned, the Guatemalan Maya Center there in Lake Worth Beach in Palm Beach County, which which is playing a you know major role uh, in 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 advocacy for for Aguilar, do Aguilar's defenders feel that perhaps this altercation might not have even happened if not for the new immigration law in Florida that specifically targets undocumented migrant workers like him? Do they argue that offers like officers like Kunovich are being prodded to profile Hispanics like him because of this law? A- absolutely. I think they're careful about putting the law under the same umbrella of this particular case. But from my previous reporting of this indigenous Mayan community and other immigrants, one of the main concerns is language barriers between immigrants and police officers. Yeah. The immigrants aren't aware of their rights in those specific situations and are are find it quite difficult to respond to police commands. This this is not just a language barrier, Tim. This is also a cultural and legal barrier right. that is quite difficult for immigrants to understand. And this is where the Guatemalan Maya Center really comes in. I mean, for, tell us about how this case is being handled by the judge in St. John's County, given those special situations you've just mentioned, and how the Guatemalan Maya Center is is really playing a large role in resolving all of that. Yeah, uh, Madi Blanco is the assistant executive director at the Guatemala Maya Center in Lake Worth Beach, which is essentially known for its immigrant advocacy. And she has been assisting the Seventh Judicial Circuit Court with cultural and language interpreters. And she actually testified in December, along with several other experts, that Aguilar Mendez was incapable of understanding the American judicial process due to his yeah. limited English and Spanish proficiency. And so last month, uh, St. John's County Judge Arlie Smith actually ruled Aguilar Mendez, who has a sixth grade education, mm-hmm. incompetent to proceed the trial for now. Right. And because of considerations like that, I think you also mentioned in your report that Florida's Seventh Judicial Circuit Court is now reviewing the case as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, the case is currently at a standstill. Uh, the county judge, again, ordered a, a jail-based competency training where Aguilar Mendez is held at the Volusia uh, County Jail. Okay. His case will only move forward once he is proven to understand the U.S. judicial process, and experts say that could take months while he remains in jail. And meanwhile, there is now a national online petition drive supporting Aguilar with what is, it has now 600,000 signatures? Uh, before I get to that, I want to say that sure. uh, public defenders did file uh, a motion to have this case released and to have him discharged uh, from jail. But I want to say this. Yes. Uh, at, you know, the Guatemala Maya Center rallied support for Aguilar Mendez through Change.org, this sort of national online petition, which features several videos 
uh, calling for his release from jail and dismissal of the charges. More right. than half a million signatures with the goal of a million signatures. Right. I think, I think more than 600,000 signatures now at this point, right? Yeah. Now, but one of the other things I wanted to bring up with you, Wilkin, I, in my own work as a Latin America correspondent over the years, I have reported from Aguilar's home province of Huehuetenango in Guatemala. And I know what a desperate place it is these days. It's part of what we call the Corredor Seco, or Dry Corridor. And it's, it's been hit hard by climate change, as in very little grows there these days in the way of food. So it's no surprise that 80% of the families there have someone like Virgilio Aguilar working now in the U.S., what I'm getting at, Wilkin, is that there are a lot of migrant workers in Florida like him from indigenous communities like Weiweitanango. Do you think that reality is affecting or will affect how this case will ultimately play out and be handled by prosecutors and the judge? Do his circumstances argue for his innocence in what happened in that regard, do you think? Uh, well, it depends on the context his legal team puts forth in the case, and that's perhaps where the Guatemalan Maya Center in Lake Worth Beach comes in. Right. They're adding that cultural cultural language language and socioeconomic background to the case to give a more holistic view of the team. So it, right. it really depends on how they handle that. Okay. Wilkin Brutus is WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter. Thanks, as always, for your great reporting, Wilkin. Tim, thanks for having me. Finally on the Roundup, we do have some happier news out of Palm Beach County this week. If you think your puppy is the roughest and toughest, you haven't met Mr. Bean. That's the dog who's going to represent Florida in Puppy Bowl 20 on Sunday. Mr. Bean is pure canine courage. The Papillon mix was a stray born without his front legs, but he taught himself to walk upright and was eventually taken in by the Barky Pines Animal Rescue and Sanctuary in West Palm Beach. For Puppy Bowl, Mr. Beans even got his own pooch promo. It's a showdown to raise the wolf. Representing Team Rough, it's Mr. Bean. As a member of Team Rough, Mr. Bean is the most happy pup and is very athletic. He was born without front legs and has the strongest back legs of the team. He can hop twice as fast as any other player. Get ready to paw team. We've got an all-star showdown coming up between Team Rough and Team Fluff. Vote for your favorite pups on PuppyBowl.com. You can catch the Puppy Bowl on Animal Planet at 2 p.m. on Sunday. Mr. Bean and Team Ruff will, of course, be playing for the Lombarki Trophy. And no, I didn't make that up. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.